It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome, fight fans, to a new episode of Career Profiles. It's been a long time that we've been coming to you. Uh, obviously, we've explained uh, the reasons why we've not been able to produce a career profile since Nigel Ben, but this one has been a long time coming. It took us quite a while to get the information together because we wanted to make sure that this episode was as, as close to the best story possible as you could possibly get out there. And there's so many different sources Sources that skim over information, sources that don't skim over information. Sometimes you don't know how true this information is, but we've scoured the internet, we've scoured books, we've scoured as much as we can to get this information to you, and this career profile is all about the incomparable Jack Johnson, the first African-American world heavyweight champion, the guy that just didn't really give a shit. What he was doing inside and outside of the ring, Johnston. We've been we've been looking forward to doing this one. We knew it was going to be a long one, and it is a two-parter for the reason being that there's that much information that we wanted to put into the episode. That if we did it in one episode, in one chunk, you're talking nearly three hours easily. And I don't think that's from a listener like myself and like yourself who, who both listen to different podcasts. It's just not feasible to sit there for three hours straight and listen to one full episode so we'll do it in two parts this is part number one we're going to set the scene to jack johnson's life leading all the way up to just before he gets his first world title shot and then we'll continue on in the second part to go through all his reign in the world heavyweight division everything that he did and of course the aftermath from his boxing career but this is an absolute monster of an episode this isn't it it is a monster of an episode and it's an episode that we've been wanting to do for a while We've been putting it off mainly because of just the length. We knew we we're going to need to go into a lot of detail with it. And I, we're definitely going to do that. The fact we've made it a two-part, you're right. I mean, we did Sugar Ray Robinson. It was a good listen. You can listen, you can sit there and listen to it for three hours, however long that one is, just over three hours. You know, it, I just think, we think, we believe it, it makes 
more sense to break this down into two halves for you all. Um, so you get the first half and then the following week you get the next, the next half. What a, an amazing person, really. I mean, he, he changed the landscape of boxing, Jack Johnson. We all know this, but there's going to be some stories in here that people may not be too familiar with. And uh, just what, what, what a, a crazy story about Jack Johnson. So as always, fight fans, we'll take it back to the beginning and we'll go even further back than just Jack Johnson himself. We're first going to talk about Jack's dad, Henry Johnson. Now, he was born in Maryland or, they suggest, Virginia sometime during the 1830s. Now, after serving as a civilian teamster attached to the U.S. Army's 38th Coloured Infantry, he settled in Galveston in 1867. Now, he stood just five foot five and was actually severely disabled by an atrophied right leg which is a partial or a complete wasting away of a part of the body. Now this disease of rheumatism happened while he was in the trenches at Petersburg, Virginia. Now his son remembered his father as the most perfect physical specimen I have ever seen. Now his wife Tina aka Tiny Johnson was from either North or South Carolina. They were both still slaves by the time their third child and first son, Arthur John Johnson, was born in Galveston, Texas on March the 31st, 1878. Now the following year, the last Union troops were withdrawn from the former Confederacy, leaving freed blacks to fend for themselves. Now blacks were no longer enslaved, but not yet truly free. Neither Henry nor Tiny were educated, but both worked to support their large family of nine. And that was including the six surviving children out of their family as well, by the way. Now, Henry worked as a porter in a saloon and then as a school janitor, finally as a supervising janitor for Galveston's East School District. And Tiny did the washing for the locals. Now, they did manage to save enough money to buy a plot of land at 808 Broadway at the island's eastern end and built their own single-storey home. And they were, of course, devoted religious folk and they pushed all their children to read and to write. So as a boy, Jack Johnson, he was known as Arthur and Little Arthur due to his small, frail size right up to the age of 12, would you believe it? Although at some point he, he reversed the order of his name to become... John Arthur Johnson. Johnson held down two jobs while he attended school to help his family out financially. Now, he swept out schoolrooms and he remembered those devilish brooms were taller than I was. It was sure the joy of my early life to grow taller than the broomstick. Now, his his other job was helping the milkman. He was paid 10 cents for his assistance and or a brand new pair of bright red socks. He was uh, especially close to his mother, he, who told him often that he was the best boy in the world and assured him that he could be anything he wanted to be if he wanted it badly enough. Now, Jack was a bright, talkative and filled with energy and confident that he would someday be somebody special. Now, his mother recalls a moment when he was doing his homework and she said, Jack was reading in the Texas history book about great men. And he turns around to me and he tells us how he is going to be a great man himself one of these days. And I say, shucks, boy, what are you talking about? What, you think you're going to be a president? 
He said, no, he wasn't figuring out to be a president, but he expects he'll be something just as big. Now, although the community in Galveston, Texas has its racial problems, this part of America wasn't as bad as others. A long-time resident remembered we were segregated, but it wasn't as bad as other places in the state of Texas. That was a unique thing about Galveston. Negroes and Caucasian people were poor and lived in the same neighbourhood, ate the same food, suffered the same problems. Johnson and his brothers and sisters attended a segregated public school, but the community which surrounded it were not. And Johnson remembers, From the time I was old enough to play on the Galveston docks, I played with a gang of white boys. They continued to say, We had a great gang, too, and every kid in Galveston looked up to the 11th Street and Avenue K gang. That was us. My best pal and one of his best friends I have now is Leo Posner, a white boy who was the head of our gang down there. So you see, as I grew up, the white boys were my friends and my pals. I ate with them, played with them, and slept at their homes. Their mothers gave me cookies, and I ate at their tables. No one ever taught me that white men were superior to me. And when I started fighting, I fought just as enthusiastically against them as I had once fought on Leo Posner's side. Now, there was a moment where Jack Johnson almost drowned as a young boy. Los Angeles Examiner explained on July the 16th, 1910, when Johnson went swimming off the docks with other boys and got too close to a steamboat's paddle wheel, a youth named Cafferty Williams, presumably a member of the 11th Street and Avenue K gang, dove in and saved him from being sucked under. Years later, Johnson would express his gratitude by sending Williams $500 from his winnings. So Johnson, he avoided fights as much as possible. He admitted to being a runner rather than face up to the neighbourhood bullies and he depended on his older sisters to protect him until he was 12. That was when he realised that he could actually fight. Now, while going home from school one day, this is in Johnson's own words, I fell into a heated argument with Willie Morris, one of my schoolmates. Grandmother Gilmore was standing in the front yard. As I looked at Grandmother Gilmore's direction, Willie struck me in the jaw. Now, at that time, Willie was much larger than I, and his unexpected blow to my jaw rather stunned me for a few seconds. And upon getting my bearings, my first impulse was to run, and perhaps I would have had it not been for Grandma Gilmore. She had witnessed Willie strike me, and when she saw that I did not show fight, she called out to me, Arthur, if you do not whip Willie, I shall whip you. <laughs> now, his assertion with Grandma Gilmore made a different aspect upon the whole thing. It calls me to lose all thought of retreat. At once, I figured that I'd much rather give Willie a whipping than receive a whipping myself. So immediately, I sailed into Willie and whipped him. This was my first fight, and I won it by infighting and clinching. I clinched Willie, and in the breakaway, I struck him in the eye, which ended the fight. Now, this story does vary through the years sometimes he mentions another boy he fought and instead of grandma gilmore it would be his mother that gave him the dressing down to defend himself but it is a great story though isn't it like the the story around the fact that he was about to run away when either his grandma or his mother turned around and said if you don't 
whip him, I'm going to whip you. And it's like, shit, this is a fight <laughs> or flight moment. And this is exactly where it all began for him. Now, his hero, Jack Johnson's hero, was a con man named Steve Brody, a self-promoting Irish immigrant who had become famous after surviving a jump off the brand new Brooklyn Bridge. Not that anyone seen him do any of this, of course. He clearly attracted the gullible, and young Johnson was one of those. Now, at the age of 12, Johnson ran away from home and headed for New York City to meet his idol. And in his own words, Johnson said, I ran away as a kid, stowed away in a cotton steamer and landed in New York. I hadn't had a nickel. As the ship docked, I went on deck, standing in front of the passengers with my longest face and my saddest eyes. I announced that I was a worthless coloured boy without friends, family or money and was about to jump overboard. I walked to the rail and told everybody to keep away from me. I had allowed my old cap to fall on deck. As I turned to try my bluff at the fatal plunge, a woman threw a dollar in my cap. A shower of money then followed. And with that, Johnson grabbed all his money, made his way to meet his hero, Steve Brody, and he said, I got there just as fast as my legs could carry me. I sneaked in past the swinging doors and went right up to the bar. I asked, where's Mr. Brody? And the men drinking must have chuckled to themselves at the thin-coloured youngster who was so serious in his quest. Well, they kidded the life out of me. And what they basically did was give him the runaround from one patron to another, which left Johnson unsure as if to ever even meet his hero, Steve Brody. And he said, it seemed that everyone in that saloon was Steve Brody. And I don't know to this day if I ever met him. Johnson didn't head home to Galveston right away. He said he moved on to Boston and met his other idol, Barbados demon Joe Walcott. And he said, I went to Boston to find Joe Walcott. They had cheated me out of one celebrity, but I vowed that when I got back to Galveston, I'd tell Leo Posner and the rest of them that I had at least talked to Walcott. Now, Walcott apparently took a liking to the young, gangly, confident teenager, and rumour has it that he sometimes allowed him to carry his gym bag. Walcott told him before he went home to Galveston, Sonny, boxing's a great game if you don't forget to pull in your chin. <laughs> Great there. Yeah. Two of his absolute idols and he's travelled all the way to New York at such a young age to try and find him. Not quite sure if you've got Brody, but he definitely got Walcott. This, Walcott will come up in his story once again at some point. And now by the time he actually reached his teens, Johnson had left school after just five years of education and he began working a string of jobs. At first he worked on the Galveston docks before switching his trade to sweeping out a barber shop. He then worked as a porter in a gambling saloon and a baker's assistant. Now, he found, eventually, found work at a racetrack exercising horses and then became an apprentice to a man who painted carriages. Now, Johnson thought the work tedious, but he later wrote, as luck would have it, Walter Lewis, the shop owner, turned out to be a great lover of boxing. And he had in his shop a stock of gloves and nothing gave me more pleasure after a day's work than to watch two or three rounds of sparring between friends. He didn't know much and I knew even less. The science of boxing was still Greek to me. Nevertheless, I learned to hit strong and hard. It's thanks to Lewis that I've become a boxer. Jack, he said to me, why don't you put yourself in the ring? You have the height and the reach. You are stronger than any boy your age. If you train seriously, you could become a terrific fighter. 
Now, with that advice of Walter Lewis, he found another job, clearing out a gym run by a German-born heavyweight named Hermann Bernou. Now, Johnson managed to save up enough money to buy himself two pairs of gloves, and he began carrying them with him everywhere he went, challenging other members of his gang to spar with him. Now, Johnson was a natural. He took to boxing like a duck to water. He was fast, accurate and elusive. One of his gang members actually remembers that he could predict every blow. He eventually had a run-in with a much older and bigger guy called Davy Pearson. They were playing a game of craps when the police arrested Johnson, but Pearson had it on his toes and got away, although later he was arrested too. And he actually accused Johnson of grassing him up, which Johnson adamantly denied. When the two were released from prison, they met on the dock to sort out their differences in front of a large crowd. And Johnson, well, he easily beat David Pearson. And afterwards, he remembered people went around asking one another, did you see what little Arthur just did? That was when he realised that there could be money in this brutal game of boxing. Now, Johnson's moment came in the summer of 1895 against another dock worker named John Must Have It Lee. That was actually his nickname, Must Have It. (laughs) He remembered... It was arranged for us to fight at Josie's Beer Garden at the east of the island near the beach. Now, he kept it a secret from his mother, like many fighters did in those years. But of course, as mums always do, she found out when she noticed a large gathering walking past her house and she asked, what's all the commotion? What was it about? And someone said, why, Jack's going to the beach to fight. And she fight, she replied. What's that boy doing fighting? and people going out to the beach to see him. And graciously, they told me they had paid people money to fight. I never knew there was any money in this fighting business, except to have to pay it to the police court for a fine. (laughs) Johnson told many stories of how he got into boxing, and they're all different. Now, it was after a fight with the neighbourhood bully, a running with a brutal railroad detective, and by taking part in the Battle Royales. Now, for those that are not familiar with the Royales, they were backroom spectacles. Eight to ten young black boys would fight until the last one was standing whilst blindfolded. White men would bet and cheer on them whilst getting drunk, and it was such a stomach-churning way of exploiting and abusing those poor boys. But Johnson would frequently get the prize money, which was often loose change that had been chucked into the pit at the last boy standing after this horrific ordeal. By the time Johnson was 18, he was strong, fast and stood over six feet tall and began spending all of his time boxing, earning more in one night than his father could even earn in a week's work. Now, it wasn't long until he began sparring with other veteran fighters, travelling around town to participate in bouts by riding the rails, and it was the beginning of life on the road. It was a hard life at such a young age, but he learned his craft taking on other black fighters for 10 to $15 a night. Now, when gentleman Jim Colbert, he defeated the John L. Sullivan to become the world heavyweight champion, Johnson, he was impressed with his earliest ring hero. Now, obviously, Walcott was another. And he was uh, telling a reporter that he was the most beautiful boxer that had ever lived and that his rise had marked the moment when skill began to have greater place in the ring 
than mere brute force. And that's Jack Johnson's own words there. Now, by October of 1896, Johnson found himself in New York where he applied for a job as a sparring partner for the black welterweight schooly Bill Quinn. Now, he was actually getting ready for a fight with Johnson's old friend, Joe Walcott. His application was rejected, Johnson recalled. I was nothing but a poor black guy without a cent and dying of hunger. Scaldy Bill and his trainer were leading a grand life. They threw $5 around as tips and drank to Bill's next victory. But there were no $5 bills for Jack Johnson. So a pissed off Jack Johnson asked for three cents to take a ferry to Long Island where his other hero, Walcott, was training. Now he, as his scaldy Bill, he gave him a furious look and told him not to annoy him any further. Johnson did manage to gather enough money to travel and Walcott's manager put him up in a boarding house where Johnson later claimed to have run up a $90 (laughs) tab. Walcott wasn't impressed when he got the final bill and he was actually quoted as saying, for the love of God, Jack, I've never eaten like that before in my life. <laughs> That's funny. I love that. I love these little stories <laughs> like that. It's great. And to be honest with you, it's not one that I've I've heard before. So it's nice to to get these different types of stories from from different sources. Now, in 1898, at the age of just 20, Johnson's parents tried to arrange for him to be wed to the daughter of friends, but instead he unofficially married a young Galveston woman a childhood friend named Mary Austin, and he said, My fortune in those days was somewhat lean, but we were devoted to each other, and we were very happy. The following year, Johnson decided that it was time to move away from Galveston in hope of earning more money from boxing instead of the poor 10 to $20 he was taking home after a night of fighting. And he said, I decided to travel the world, to try and box from one coast to the other, and to attach myself to the training camp of a famous boxer. His first destination was Chicago, and it was pretty much a non-eventful journey until he arrived in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, while sleeping, Johnson was awoken by a man holding a lantern in one hand and a club in the other, and Johnson recalled, He addressed me in a tough manner and said, Well, boy, if you haven't any money, you'll have to jump off. Johnson was broke, and the train was moving way too fast to jump off. Now, while gathering his thoughts, the man swung his club, and Johnson remembers. I sidestepped it, and I hit him in the jaw, and followed it with an uppercut to the nose, which knocked him into the land of Nod. He was just coming to, when I noticed that the train had slowed down a great deal. And looking out at his door, I saw many lights, so judging that we were in KC. I jumped off, hustled something to eat, and after waiting all day, I boarded another freight train for Chicago. What a story. Wow. Them freight trains, they're not, they weren't nice places uh, riding the rails. And uh, any time, you know, you're asleep, these type of things happened. And I mean, we did it with in McCoy's story. He, he also uh, rode the rails. Difficult for, for, for Jack traveling around in such a, a troubled time. Now, while Jack in Chicago, he began to search for a white trainer you know, back then. If you wanted decent money for fights, you always needed a white man, unfortunately, to negotiate whether you liked it or not. And Johnson visited many boxing gyms around Chicago, but he was unable to find a white manager. Although he was always, entirely always greeted by the police along the way. 
Johnson told The Ring magazine, if I ventured into the streets of some of the smaller towns where a stranger was quickly discovered, police officers and constables manifested deep concern in me. In fact, they were generally so deeply interested that they often insisted that I remain a guest of their town. On these occasions, I was introduced to the town judge who pried into my personal affairs and asked me embarrassing questions. Usually, I was instructed to hasten out of town, which was just exactly what I wished to do and what I was trying to do when the police interfered. Now, hoping that prospects might be brighter in Memphis or St. Louis, who's another place he travelled, he hopped on another freight train. When he pulled into Springfield, Illinois, he got down and went looking for something to eat. Somehow, he caught the eye of Johnny Connor, an ex-bantamweight who ran the Senate bar, putting on boxing shows above the saloon twice a month, and he was worried about his next card. The main event wouldn't be a crowd pleaser, so Connor decided that a battle royale would be the perfect way to entertain his audience. He had four participants already, and he thought that Johnson would make a good addition, a fifth addition. He asked Johnson if he wanted to get involved, and offered him food, a place to stay, and a purse of a dollar fifty. And if he was, that was only if he was the last man standing. As we've already mentioned, Johnson was no stranger to the Battle Royales. He would have taken part in many while living in Galveston. But interestingly, he was actually quoted as saying, "Springfield was my first Battle Royale." Now, friends were often matched in these outrageous contests, and the one that Johnson agreed to was no different. The four friends had already agreed on the winner at the end and they would split the money amongst themselves so they decided to all attack the stranger, as in Jack Johnson, at the bell. Now retreating to a corner and with his back to the ropes, Jack Johnson knocked out the first two with right hands to the jaw then connected to the midsection of the third, dropping him to his knees like he was praying and that's what Johnson said he remembers knocking him to his knees and he looked like he was praying now he chased the fourth man a big red-haired fellow until he could corner him and knock him out too when the man he'd felled with a body shot showed signs of struggling to his feet Johnson hurried to the side stood over him and whispered if you get up I will kill you of course the man smartly stayed down and after the victory Johnson remembers his new manager showered him with praise and paid for all his drinks and his food and Johnston recalls getting about 30 sandwiches and a dozen beers. Now not only was Johnston's new manager impressed with his showing so was the referee George Sealer also known as Honest George. Now when he returned to Chicago by train along with former heavyweight turn promoter PJ Paddy Carroll and his young assistant Jack Curley George could not stop talking about Johnston. A few weeks later, he continued to wax lyrical about him while at a sports bar. The bartender, Frank Kennedy, who also had acted as an official timekeeper for big fights, was speaking highly of his protégé, John Haynes, a.k.a. Klondike. In the end, a $50 bet was made between Frank and George. Paddy Carroll wired Johnny Connor in Springfield, asking that Jack Johnson come to Chicago and fight Klondike on the next week's undercard with a $25 purse going to the winner and $10 going to the loser. Johnson agreed. Now he showed up at his big city debut at the Howard Theatre on May the 5th, 1899, malnourished. 
with pretty much his first punch, he floored Klondike, who stayed down for a reported three minutes, but the referee only reached the count of nine. The fight continued on until the six before Johnson went down from a body shot. The referee continued to count for several minutes, but Johnson, he refused to get back to his feet, and the fight ended in defeat. Johnson wrote in his prison memoir, For three rounds I fought him to a standstill, and the other three rounds he fought me until I wanted to keep still. The trouble was, back then, you didn't get paid if you quit. So Johnson was refused his $10, but he did manage to get $3 from Jack Curley and his other assistant, Sig Hart. Again, this is a crazy story that I never knew about with Jack Johnson. Klondike uh, goes over there, fights him, clearly knocks the guy down. Klondike should have been counted out. It was a bit of a circus in there by, by all accounts. It seemed like they were taking the piss out of these guys. I think Johnson felt that. You know, malnourished. He got put down with a nice every shot. And he thought, you know what? I'm just going to uh, take a knee. And he literally sat there for a few minutes and didn't get up, bless him. So, yeah, they weren't best pleased. So, so Johnson, he, he did stay in uh, Chicago working as a sparring partner for former black heavyweight Frank Crafty Texan Childs. Now, it wasn't a pleasant experience. Johnson said Frank disliked him. For each time that I stepped into the ring with him, he would give me an awful beating. Although Childs did put him up for a short period of time in his rented accommodation, it wasn't long until Johnson was kicked out and fired by Childs when he brought home a female to stay with him. Now, Johnson had to resort to living on the streets until a Chicago promoter got him to fight, which he won, but lost all of his winnings on a game of dice. One thing you'll, you'll learn with Jack is he loved to gamble. Now, after managing to acquire a place for the week, thanks to another manager called Frank Lewis, he was asked to pay for a night uh, a night's keep. Frank Lewis's luck ran out himself. I'm not quite sure why he was funding Johnson as well to stay there. Full ball, he ate everything he wanted to eat. It was, it's interesting. I'm not quite sure what Frank Lewis's, what he was, what he was doing there. But Johnson waited until everyone was asleep and he legged it for another freight train. This time he headed east and landed in Pittsburgh, where his luck changed. Near a stockyard, he was approached by a man who asked if he would be interested in fighting the butcher who was on a winning streak. Johnson accepted the fight, uh, knocked out the butcher in a round and headed for New York uh, with a cap full of dollars. Now, while in the Big Apple, he teamed up with his old pal. He went looking for Joe Walcott and he was actually in his corner when he fought Dan Creedon. He also trained a featherweight, Kid Conroy. And I know it much, this is Jack Johnson saying he trained this guy. You can't really find anything. It's his own words. He says that's what he did. He earned enough money betting on him. He, he put money, he was training him, putting some money on him, and he won a load of money. And it actually gave him enough money to buy his first ever train ticket to Galveston. And Johnson said it was the first time he had ever written the cushions instead of the rods. Now, when he arrived home, he made contact with an old friend, that Leo Posner, who, who we spoke about earlier, who was now the matchmaker for Galveston Athletic Club. Leo would get him fights from time to time, but nothing significant, until Bob White came into town on April 6th, 1900. White was on a purple patch, and his white supporters, as in uh, the white public supporters, were calling for a 15-rounder with Johnston for a $100 purse. Of course, Johnson was made up, and he fought Bob White. He went the distance with Bob White, and he won by decision. 
and he had beaten the uh, current best heavyweight in Texas, which made him the best heavyweight in Texas. Now, the following month, Johnson faced his first well-known white challenger in Jim Scanlon and knocked him out in six rounds, and then three weeks later, faced him again, knocking him out in half this time. Now, in June, he fought to a 20-round draw with Klondike and then knocked out Horace Miles for $25. In the ring, Johnson was beginning to make a name for himself. Money troubles were disappearing, and Galveston, Texas was developing. That was until September the 8th, 1900, when the Great Galveston Hurricane hit, known regionally as the Great Storm of 1900. It was the deadliest natural disaster in American history, and the fifth deadliest Atlantic hurricane overall. The hurricane left between six to 12,000 people dead in the United States. The number most cited in official reports is about 8,000. Now, most of these deaths occurred in and near Galveston. After the storm surge flooded the coastline with an, reportedly an 8 to 12 foot of water. In addition to the numbers of people killed, the storm destroyed about 7,000 buildings of all different types of uses in Galveston, which included 3,636 demolished homes. Every home in the city suffered some degree of damage. The hurricane left approximately 10,000 people in the city homeless, out of a total population of fewer than 38,000 people. The disaster ended the golden era of Galveston as the hurricane worried potential investors who turned to Houston instead. The next morning, Jack Johnson awoke, feeling lucky, and he said, I was one of the few residents of Galveston who did not lose a member of his family. Wow, incredible. Literally just ripped through Galveston and, and that part of America. Devastating, absolutely devastating. And So two months later, Johnson, who had moved with his family to another home in Galveston, I think it was north of Galveston, was back in the ring. An advertisement in the Police Gazette by A. Bush promoted Johnson as a potential opponent in need of a fight against other good men. Paddy Carroll saw the ad and offered a third fight between Johnson and Koddyke in Memphis. But this time, Johnson, now 22, battered Klondike for 14 rounds until he quit on his stall. An angry crowd actually chased Klondike out of the ring, out the exit door, and down to the Mississippi River. (laughs) Johnson earned his biggest payday by a mile of $1,000. Now, the weeks that followed were grim for everyone in Galveston, and Johnson would later write, in the hours following the storm, he pushed boats away from looters who demanded money before they would go to anyone's aid. Uh, he saved many lives of people clinging onto roofs and uh, trees, branches. And, and he may have actually served on the largely black crews that laboured uh, in Galveston's streets for weeks thereafter. Uh, handkerchiefs over their mouths, like something like the Great from, from the Great Plague digging the dead from the wreckage, uh, cremating the corpses, or transporting them out to sea. Deputies, deputised whites with guns, actually kept them in the heat and the stench, working away and, and just pulling dead bodies out. It, awful. You, you can't even imagine. Their only re- rewards were hot meals and enough bills to make them forget. Johnson actually stayed on in Memphis for a while, winning so many battle royals that 
Finally, no one in town was at, would actually climb in the ring with him. He then signed for a rematch against Jim Scanlon, but the chief of police cancelled it at the last moment on the grounds that no white boxer should meet a black man in Memphis. So in February 1901, Johnson headed back home to Galveston. Now, while Johnson was back in his hometown, Jack Curley was approached by a Texan man who showed up at his Chicago office. The stranger had a problem back in Galveston, and he said, we've got a big, fresh Negro down there by the name of Jack Johnson, who has won some fights and he's bragging too much. We're tired of listening to him, and we want to see him licked. And I thought maybe Carroll could send somebody down there to do it. Now, Curley suggested the Jewish heavyweight Joe Bartlett, Janoski, weighing no more than 175 pounds. Janoski fought five future heavyweight champions, and they never fought him again once they won the title. Jim Corbett said this of Janoski. He said, Little Joe was the hardest hitter I ever tangled with. To this day, I can't figure out how a little runt like him could hit so damn hard. Now, Curley thought highly of the tough Jewish heavy, and thought he would be the perfect guy to shut Johnson up. He told the Texan, he lives right out here in Lagrange, and I can get him on the telephone in a minute, but you'll have to pay him $1,500 or $2,000 to get him to go down there. The Texan agreed. Chornoski was on the decline at the time, but many felt that you know he was still more than capable of beating the young Brash Johnson. The fight took place on February 25th, 1901. Although, again, some do suggest this was just a sparring session, but some, you know, this is, it depends what it varies. It happened in uh, Harmony Hall, a ramshackle survivor of the hurricane. Johnson took the first two rounds, but Chernoski waited for an opening and finally landed a huge left hook to the jaw of Johnson, who fell forward into Chernoski's arms, then slid to the floor face down. The referee began his count. Johnson rolled over his back and could not get up. Now, while trying desperately to get back to his feet, five Texas Rangers jumped into the ring, waving their revolvers. He and Chernoski were arrested for engaging in an illegal contest. Johnson remembers, I never asked anyone to let the fight go on. I was damn glad it was over, but I didn't much like the trip to jail. It was a felony for two men to fight for money in 1901, and it held a two-year sentence. But the Galveston County Sheriff, who was Henry Thomas, was leaning on the pair. He even allowed a crowd to gather every day at lunchtime to watch the pair spar. For a little bit of pocket money, of course, that went into uh, the county sheriff's pocket. They spent 23 days in prison together. Johnson remembers two days longer than a man who had killed his wife. Huh. <laughs> During their time behind bars, the old master was able to search show Johnson some some of the tricks of the trade, jabbing, fainting and slipping punches. Wow, it's a great story again. You know, Johnson was pretty pretty much beaten and was struggling to get back to his feet and then all of a sudden they come in, they're waving the guns around, they say, nope, this fight's over. So there was never a definitive result to the end of that fight and they end up spending more time in jail than somebody who'd actually murdered his wife. That's That just shows you the sign of the times, really. Now, Johnson was... Jesus. He was beginning to demonstrate his own distinctive style in the ring. He was smooth and laid back. Defensive, took few chances and countered his opponents when they made mistakes or used his huge frame to tie them up. 
it was not a fan-friendly style in these days. They wanted to see two guys punch each other while standing still, with no skill involved. Johnson's style may not have been what the public wanted to see, but it baffled his opponents to the point where they could not find a way to beat him, and he won fight after fight after fight. Now, former light heavyweight champion Jose Torres said this of Jack Johnson. He knew when to punch and where to punch. He used to make guys miss by pulling back, and that's a no-no in boxing because pulling back is like being in the train track. When a train is coming, you don't want to be hit. You don't move back because the train eventually is going to hit you. You move to one side, you move to the other. But Johnson and Ali did not move to the side, but the train never caught up with them. Now, the writer Stanley Crouch, he explains Johnson's style in a different way, and he said, he figured out ways of getting people in positions where they can be hit and do different kinds of things to throw them off balance and to do the same sort of things that magicians do. The magician is always trying to get you to look in a different direction to where the trigger is actually being brought off. Now, well, gentleman Jim Corbett demonstrated the same skills as Johnson when he defeated John L. Sullivan to become the new world champion. Sports pages praised him as the cleverest man in boxing. But when Johnson performed that way, he was said to be lazy, shiftless, showing the yellow streak which all African Americans were supposed to share. Again, another sign of the times there. Uh, these uh, you do when you when you do pick up some of these articles back in the 1900s. Um, to say they're racist is an understatement. We have managed to change certain words. Um, I think you could probably understand what they would have said if we removed Afro-Caribbeans in there. Yeah, a very difficult time for, for Jack, but he never really seemed to bother him. Now, following his release or their release from, from their jowl uh, after picking up some nifty tricks from Choynoski, both fighters were warned to make themselves scarce for a while. So Johnson hopped on another freight train and he headed to Denver this time. He fought what the Rocky Mountain News described as a very tame draw against a guy called Billy Stift on April 26th and then joined what he called a motley crew of scrappers uh, living and training at Ryan's Sand Creek House, five miles northwest of town. Now, that legendary crew, and my God, is it legendary, included heavyweights Tom Sharkey, Bob Armstrong, Mexican Pete Everett, Welterweight, New York, Jack O'Brien, Featherweights, Abe Attell, Young Colbert II, and George Dixon. And world-class trainers at the time were also training these guys, Spider Kelly and Tommy Ryan. And they would spend weeks fighting local challenges in Denver, battling each other when there was no, no one else that had the bottle to face them. Johnson became Sharky's sparring partner for a while, but Johnson was too quick and too sharp for the veteran who uh, sacked him eventually because he just couldn't hit him. Uh, Johnson actually worked in the kitchen and picked up $150, not bad going, as a corner man for a legendary fighter, George Dixon, when he fought Abe Till. Now, it was during this time that he called his wife, Mary Austin, to stay with him. But it wasn't long before he and Mary boarded a train and headed for California. Johnson's first point of call was George E. Eckhart, a superintendent and matchmaker for the Stockton Athletic Association. Johnson impressed his new potential trainer slash manager after excellent sparring sessions, but after he demanded more than what George was willing to accept, 
he threw him out of his gym. Now, Johnson landed in the hands of Frank Carrillo as a manager, a man who had many jobs, including being a loan shark and a grass. He demanded half of whatever Johnson earned, but in return, he promised him the best heavyweights in California. Now, that was enough to convince Johnson to stay in Bakersfield, and it was also the first time that Johnson began to show that the race rules did not apply to him, and he refused to conform with the colour line socially. Somehow, Johnson used his gift of the gab and managed to get himself into rented rooms in the white part of the town. Frank Carrillo arranged for Johnson to fight a guy called Hank Griffin at the New Harmony Hall once again in Bakersfield on November 4th, 1901. Griffin was known for his very slim build and was two inches taller than Johnson. Sources are varied about the outcome of this fight. Some suggest Griffin won by decision, but Johnson recalls different. He recalls two knockdowns for him and a draw. The current world heavyweight champion, James J. Jeffries, defended his title against Gus Rulin at the Mechanics Pavilion on November 15th, and Johnson was determined to size up or size the champ up for a potential bout in the future. He was adamant to watch the fight for free. Johnson and three of the, his boxing powers, who was Abe Patel, lightweight Eddie Hanlon, and welterweight Harry Foley, all managed to sneak in. And they actually, while they sneaked in, they waited sort of around the back. A security guard did catch them. Johnson made up this bogus story, got away with it, and they sat there munching off a, a bag of donuts while they waited for the fight to begin. <laughs> Again, these lovely little touches here from Jack Johnson was brilliant. The fight was a bit of an anticlimax until the fifth round when Rulin was knocked down. Uh, when he got up, Jeffries landed a left to the ribs at the bell. One writer said the fighter nearly broke in half. A, a terrific body shot by the sounds of it from Jeffries. He was in such agony that uh, he fell back on his stall. Rulin actually grabbed the sponge from his manager and he threw it into the center of the ring himself because his manager was hesitating. <laughs> As Jeffries and his entourage made their way back to the dressing room, Abertel remembered Johnson claimed to be unimpressed. He said, in Johnson's own words, I can lick that fellow myself. He said, be still, you dinge. Well, someday I'll lick him, he said. His day would come, but not for another nine years. Now, by the December, Johnson was back sparring in San Francisco with Kid Carter, preparing him for his big fight. Reporters all gathered to watch the four-round session, but Johnson got carried away and he hurt Carter in the third. The Brooklyn fighter got mad and tried to hurt Johnson back, but his endeavours only got him hurt more. Now, if it wasn't for the promoter, Sonny Jim Koffoff, who stopped the sparring session, a day's Carter would have been knocked out. Johnson was sacked afterwards, but the press who witnessed the spar went home on the boat with only one name on their minds, Jack Johnson. Now, the next morning... It was his name being printed in the newspapers and not Carter's. He remembered that was the first time that the name of Jack Johnson appeared in print. I must say that it's often been there since. Now Johnson had a low key start to 1902. He managed a couple of draws against Hank Griffin and his old employer Frank Childs and five wins, four by knockout over unknown fighters in New England, Texas and California. But by May... Johnson's fortunes changed. He and Frank Carrillo wrote a letter to Tom McCary, matchmaker from Century Athletic Club in Los Angeles, and requested that he be given a chance. McCary 
was well known to give black fighters a chance and was actually looking for an opponent to face Jack Jeffries, the brother of James Jeffries. The current world champion offered to be a part of the entourage for the night to increase the ticket sales. The fight was scheduled to go 20 rounds at the Hazards Pavilion in LA and the out-of-towner Johnson went in, of course, as the underdog. Now, during a time when most fighters entered the ring in black, Jack Johnson always wanted to stand out. And in this particular fight, he wore bright pink. <laughs> and it's it, uh, it's offensive pink as well, by the way. This is like the pinkest pink you can ever imagine. Uh, Jack Johnson just rocks in absolutely class. Biggest moment, the biggest, definitely the biggest moment in his boxing career by this point now against uh, Jack Jeffries. And just before the bell rang, Tom McCary remembered Johnson handed him an envelope and asking him not to open it until he told him to do so. McCary said in his own words, this is all McCary's own words, for four rounds, Johnson toyed with Jeffries. His boxing was marvellous. His footwork superb. During the fighting, he would reach over Jeffries' shoulders in the clinches and he'd wink at me. Where did you get that slick tie, Uncle Tom? He'd ask. And then he'd shed Jeffrey's punches like uh, so many snowflakes. As they left their corners for the start of the fifth, Johnson hunched his shoulders, wailed away at Jeffrey's. He shouted to me, Uncle Tom, you may now open that little note that I gave you this afternoon. I did. And on it, it was written, I'll stop Jeffrey's within 50 seconds of the fifth start. And when I looked up, Jeffrey's was being counted out. Wow. Brilliant story. Absolutely hope that's true. That's just brilliant. A smiling Johnson lifted his victim from the canvas, turned him over to his seconds, grabbed a towel and helped fan him back to consciousness. When Jim Jeffries stepped into the ring to help his little brother, Johnson taunted, I can lick you too. One of the Times headlines the next day read, Pink Flurries Blaze Away. <laughs> what a great story. I absolutely love that story. It's funny that you can imagine. Yeah, you can you can imagine him doing it, can't you? Can imagine him just sort of like taunting and saying things like fighters. Some fighters do that. They do do it. It's it can be interpreted as sheer arrogance, but you know maybe that was just part of what made up Jack Johnson as an individual. Now Johnson was beginning to make a name for himself after he flattened Jack Jeffries. He continued to remain active, beating Klondike again at Memphis for a second time, and was held by Billy Stiff to a second draw in Chicago. He drew twice more with Hank Griffin and won a decision over Mexican Pete Everett in Colorado. Johnson's next fight was under McCary against Frank Childs. And after a decent scrap, the younger fresher man came out on top when Childs failed to emerge from his corner in the 12th round claiming injury. Now Johnson told many stories over the years about why he was physically under par for his next fight with white contender George Gardner. In one, a British Indian Army veteran had introduced him to a drink called Maharaja's Peg, brandy and soda in a large glass. And he had drunk glass after glass after glass, when he should have been training. Now although his performance may have been below par, Johnson was actually still good enough to put Gardner down twice, and he even helped him up when he had slipped and fell. Frank Carrillo was determined to make sure Johnson won the fight. He was working in his corner between rounds and had bet heavily on the outcome. 
Now, the rumour has it that halfway through the fight, while it was still in the balance, he flashed his revolver in Johnson's face and warned him that he would shoot him if he didn't make a greater effort. He also made sure that the referee saw his gun in hopes he would remember it when the time came to announce the decision. The Los Angeles Times reported that after the fight, police actually detained Carrillo briefly for carrying a concealed weapon. What another mad story. Yeah, Carrillo says our character, did he? Yeah, I mean, he did go on to win the fight, uh, hung over badly. Writer Stanley Crouch summed up Johnson's art in the ring to a T. He said a boxer's first task is to turn his opponent into an assistant of his own arse whipping. <laughs> and no one ever did that better than Jack Johnson. And he explained in great detail his theory behind his laid back elegant style. Now, a lot of fellows, when they knock a man down, rush in to finish him off. Whereas it is just after a fellow is knocked down that makes him the most desperate fighter. That was not Johnson's style. It was about making them miss and making them pay with that counterpunch. And Johnson continued. He said, it's not how hard you hit the other fella. It's how tired he gets trying to hit you. By gradually wearing him down, the fighter, uh, letting them tie themselves out and then hitting him with my left as he comes close, as in close quarters with me, then by clinching or executing my uppercut. I found that I lasted longer and would not carry any marks out of the ring. So he, he just explains there that he's, he's, he's tiring out his, the other guy. He wants him to miss, wears him down. And then as he gets in close, he just sort of uh, executes that lovely uppercut and the left hand. So, you know, if you wanted to know, that was Jack Johnson's method. And it was a cautious approach, but it wasn't all about his work in the ring. He wanted to entertain in the ring by talking to the press and wind out the crowd why he was in the ring. He was the whole package. You know, Muhammad Ali's adopted that style later on. And so has Tyson Fury today. Now, fans and the press began to want to pay to see Jack Johnson get beat. And that generated more money for Jack Johnson. And that was the whole point of it. And, uh, you know, as I just said, Ali did the same thing. Now, reports would suggest that Johnson was a defensive fighter, but he disagreed and he said, I was always attacking. My attack was to counter the leads I forced. Many of his opponents agreed. One sparring partner said, Johnson was a fellow that used to stand flat-footed and wait for you to come in. And when you came in, He'd rip the head off you with uppercuts, cut you all to pieces. And another said, Johnson makes you do all the work. You have to lead. And when you drive your left out, he gets away from it. And he uses that slash of his. When he slashes out with that uppercut, it's good night. Now to round off the year in 1902, Johnson inflicted a battering on Fred Russell, who was managed by Jack Jeffries and trained closely with James in his farm. Now, while Johnson was slowly punishing Russell, he did his usual gloating while in the clinch during the 8th. Russell became angered by it, so he kneed him three times in the bollocks. Johnson, (laughs) he fell to the canvas in pain, of course. The referee disqualified him, and the crowd went into an absolute frenzy. They all wanted to see Johnson lose, but not like this. Johnson was awarded a majority of the purse, but he claimed that Carrillo had taken the larger share so he sacked him. He would later have Johnson arrested for stealing his watch, but nothing ever actually came of that. Johnson did, however, find himself nicked and in court for unpaid bills, which he eventually did repay. 
His wife, Mary Austin, had also left him, and he was now courting many women, but he would later meet Clara Kerr, his next wife. <laughs> uh, what, what a mad uh, moment that was. Imagine that. For Johnson there, he loses his wife, gets Nick. <laughs> gets hit in the bollocks there. as well three times. <laughs> <laughs> gets kneed in the bollocks three times. He's still got it there then to, to start messing about with all these women. So, ah, <laughs> oh, dear. So, when a fighter is as good as Jack Johnson, as we know, it wasn't long before he had a new manager. His new manager was Zeki Abrams. There's, there's mo- loads of variations of this guy's names. We're going to call him Ze- Zeki Abrams. Uh, he was a well-known Los Angeles bookmaker and a pool room operator. He snapped Johnson up and arranged for Tom McCary once again for a February 3rd, 1903 match at Hazard's Pavilion against Denver Ed Martin. This fight was significant because it was for the Coloured Heavyweight Championship. Another manager would handle Johnson's affairs, but he was never bothered by it. He said once... They say too many cooks spoil the broth, but I've found the more managers I have, the merrier. After 10 uneventful rounds where both fighters looked for the opening rather than attacking, Johnson landed in the 11th round with a right hand to the side of the neck that sent him flying through the ropes. Martin recovered, got back to his feet and was knocked down another four times, yet he survived the round and for a further nine. Johnson was eventually given the decision after 20 rounds in action and his first world title of stults. Denver Ed Martin, now, tough guy, isn't he? Bloody hell. Oh, goodness me. Absolutely. I mean, gets put down four times in that round, survives and lasts another nine. Excellent. You can't knock that. Wow. Now, Johnson loved to spend the money he earned and he flaunted it with pride. One day after the Martin win, he bumped into a couple of reporters who said he looked like an African millionaire. They asked the new coloured heavyweight champion what he had spent his money on, and Johnson replied, Well, I've got about $200 of it left. I was mortgaged for about $500 by the time the fight came off. Training expenses, mostly. Then, I always like the very finest clothes, and I generally wear them. So, I bought some new togs, and I put a few hundred in diamonds and gave them to my wife. I like diamonds, and so does she. Then, if you're in my profession, you've always got to have your hand in your pocket when you meet the crowd in the bar. And all that sort of thing counts way up. You know, a hundred a week won't near last a first-class boxing man. Most first-class boxing men belong to the special free-spending world of the sport. So did pimps and gamblers and saloon keepers and the women who lived in the sporting houses they frequented. Now, Johnson used the press to print about his image and swagger, but he also used them to call out fighters. The most frequent was, of course, the world heavyweight champion, James Jeffries, who refused to fight black fighters. For the time being, Johnson's next bout was actually scheduled for February 27, 1903 in Los Angeles against an up-and-coming black fighter. And a guy we remember well when we did uh, Sam Langford's career profile that was the then 17-year-old Sam McVeigh. The very green McVeigh was no match for Johnson, who won every round, outboxed him, knocked him down three times. Johnson headed east after the McVeigh fight to Boston, where he beat local favourite Sandy Ferguson. 
And then he made his Philadelphia debut at the Washington Sporting Club on May 11 against a black boxer named Joe Butler. Johnson knocked him out cold in three rounds in a scheduled six. A large crowd rose to its feet and cheered the stranger from the West, wrote the Police Gazette. On June 9, McCary hosted a mixed race fight night, which didn't include Johnson, but the racial tensions were high. And when the black fighters all came out on top, the crowd, they charged the ring. In uh, in one of one specific fight, the, the black fighter was, he savagely knocked out this white guy. And it was it just a predominantly white crowd. They weren't happy with it. They didn't like the fact that at these mixed fights, you had the black guys winning. And there had been trouble in the dressing room as well before the bouts when uh, one of the white lightweight fighters named Harry Burke actually loudly demanded that Johnson lend him his towel. Johnson refused, saying no white fighter would ever do me that favour. After the fight, while Johnson was shaking hands with all the well-wishers outside his dressing room door, Burke slipped up behind him and smashed the bottle over the back of his head. Johnson's scalp required several stitches and Burke was caught and jailed overnight. <laughs> yeah, so he just gets jailed overnight for smashing a glass bottle on his head. Uh, it's absolutely mental. crazy. No, he's mental. He's mental because of the fact that how bad it was and how biased it was towards the white people and how much the black fighters were so demeaned uh, in, in the black people in general. It's absolutely yep. crazy to think that if that would have happened the other way around and Jack Johnson would have done that to somebody at that time, he would have probably been put in jail for God knows how long. It is just quite unbelievable to even think about, like, that's how bad it really, really was at the time. Now, Tom McCary promised the next day that his Century Athletic Club would stage no more mixed bouts, understandably so after what had just happened. Now, for the foreseeable future, blacks would only fight blacks and whites would only fight whites in Los Angeles. That meant no big money-making matches for Jack Johnson, who had already fought all the good black heavyweights on the West Coast, and so he made Philadelphia, his unofficial new home in the summer of 1903. Johnson spent the summer with his old friend and welterweight champion Joe Walcott and was in his corner for two of his victories. Johnson did return to the ring in July and edged a six-round points win over Sandy Ferguson again, this time at the Pennsylvania Art Club. After the win, the Los Angeles press wrote that Johnson reminded them of a black Bob Fitzsimmons. Now, around this time, Jack Doc Kearns, Jack Dempsey's manager, was quoted by Ward, American Originals, as saying this of Jack Johnson. He was always doing something mysterious, like he would step on your foot when you look down and he would bite you in the ear. <laughs> do you think that's a bit do you think that's a bit of jealousy there, you know, them them sort of comments being made? Or do you think that's sort of genuinely genuinely true? Oh, I think I think there's uh, I think it's a bit of a dig. I think there's jealousy there, and I think it's just a funny little quote there. It? <laughs> Step on your foot when you when you look down, it bite you in the ear. Yeah, I think is that that Sean? Uh, I think people were jealous of him. And, and the crazy thing was, is Johnson just he didn't seem to bother him. Uh, but the more you sort of dig into certain stuff, which we haven't gone into as such, I think maybe we might go into the second part. Is he, he always seemed so confident, Jack? But so there were dark times for him, and, um, but he never showed it. It's you, it, eventually it's going to take its toll on you when people are being that blatantly racist to you and prevent you doing certain things. But he just loved to rub them up the wrong way. He enjoyed it. He, he thrived off it. Uh, but yeah, that quote there, <laughs> funny quote. 
So, so the Johnson McVeigh rematch, it took place on October 27 and it was a one-sided demolition once again from the first bell. Johnson donned a flowery robe this time into the ring and floored McVeigh in the opening round before going on to win an easy points decision over the scheduled 20 rounds. The Times wrote, Sam McVeigh was hammered last night until his face looked like a goat had chewed it. (laughs) (laughs) The fight was eagerly anticipated and it made more than twice as much as their first fight, which was held in Los Angeles. Uh, The whole fight itself was 7,600 and Johnson earned 2,796 plus $600 more that he had actually won by betting on himself. Uh, It's something he frequently began to do after that second McVeigh fight. Now, following such a dominating display, uh, it raised the question for Johnson and Jeffries, the world title fight. Not many newspapers printed this story. As you, as you rightly suggested, Sean, the racism was just ridiculously bad. But he was the only legitimate challenger to Jeffries. And everybody knew it. But the champ refused to step over that colour line. Now, after defeating Sandy Ferguson twice, in below-par performances, and then Claude Brooks, a.k.a. Black Bill, more press began to ask about a Jeffries fight, who was adamant on his decision to not fight a black man. Johnson was getting irritated by this now, and was reported as saying, I weave the colour line myself. Johnson's performances had become laboured in recent fights, because he was unable to get himself up for the fights fighting the same guys over again and again. We said this about Sam Langford. He was in this same predicament. He defeated McVeigh for a third time. And by all accounts, he played with his younger challenger. One reporter described it as it being like a cat playing with a mouse. W.W. Norton of the San Francisco Examiner wrote, Johnson improved to some extent on his showing with Sandy Ferguson at Colmer. But still left the crowd wondering what was the matter with him. Now, with all the Californian challengers dealt with, Johnson headed to Chicago with his other half, Clara Kerr, to fight Frank Childs for a third time on June 2nd, 1904. Now, Childs barely survived knockdowns in the second and third rounds, but one newspaper called it an uneventful contest with too much on the brotherly love order to suit the spectators. Johnson and his so-called wife spent the next four months in Philadelphia, and he made some extra money paying for the all-black Philadelphia Giants with his baseball friend, the pitcher, Andrew Rube Foster. Now, Johnson returned to the ring and was fresh and ready to prove to the world that he is the only challenger to Jeffrey's world heavyweight title. He fought at the Hazards Pavilion on October the 18th and knocked out Denver Ed Martin in the second round. Martin was unconscious for so long, apparently nearly 10 minutes, that the police entered the ring ready to arrest Johnson for assault. Now after the win, Johnson said, I want Mr. Jeffries next. I think I'm entitled to a fight with him. And it was to prove that I am right that I went in this way tonight. I am faster than ever. I'm bigger and stronger. The colour line, he added, was time-worn ode and what cowardly four flushes stand by. His manager, McCary, then announced to the press that he would offer a $15,000 guarantee for a fight with Jim Jeffries. The Police Gazette agreed. Now that Johnson, who was fast as an electric spark and full of power as a 90-horsepower automobile, 
had so spectacularly defended his colour title, Jeffries had no right to draw the colour line. Uh, the pressure's on there. The, the press began to raise some serious questions about their white world champion, especially when he had four other black fighters in Peter Jack Jackson, Hank Griffin and Bob Armstrong, all guys that Jack had fought and beat. So why not Johnson? Jeffries finally broke his silence, saying, I do not care whether Johnson licks the Japanese army. I have repeatedly declared that so long as I am in the fighting business, I will never make a match with a black man. Just tell the public that James J. Jeffries has made up his mind that he will never put on boxing gloves to give battle to an Ethiopian. Apologies for that <laughs> absolute appalling racial slur there from Jeffries. Uh, it, it, you just can't get rid of some of it. Um, so, yeah, if you are offending, apologies for that. It was a long time ago. Not only after that statement, Johnson tracked the champion down at San Francisco Saloon, um, owned by Jim Corbett's brother, Harry, and he demanded his chance at a title. Surrounded by his mates, Jeffrey said again that he would never, never, ever meet Johnson or any other black challenger in the ring. Then he later claimed he put down $2,500 on the bar and told Johnson he'd fight him in the cellar alone. If Johnson managed to get back up the stairs, he could keep the money. Johnson replied, I ain't a cellar fire. Jeffries and his friends laughed before shouting a four flusher. You're not even a free flusher. Now Johnson, he was a smart guy and he knew that if Jim Jeffries wouldn't face him, then he needed to think outside of the box. That was the next top challenger in line who was marvellous Marvin Hart who had also drew the colour line. Now, Johnson stalked his prey and waited for the right time to strike. It was when Hart's fights with Kid McCoy and Philadelphia Jack O'Brien fell through and he was down on his luck and out of money. Johnson showed up at Hart's gym and began to call him a coward in the hope that he would take the bait. Finally, Hart did bite and he signed to fight Johnson at the San Francisco Athletic Club on March 28th, 1905. Hart was angered by the disrespect and he got racial. And of course, we're not going to be repeating what he said because we don't think it's right to repeat that. But what he did say roundabout was that I tell you right here that this Johnson will have to go some to beat me before the 20th round is reached, probably several rounds before there'll be a prostate on the canvas. I have got the wallop that'll win. Now, Johnson, he went into this fight as the favourite and confident of victory, but he was unaware of the promoter for the fight, Alex Griggains, who would also officiate the bout. Now, he made his point before the fight and he said, I've notified Johnson that he must fight all the time or the fight will be called a no contest. Now, Johnson dominated the first 10 rounds with ease, but refused to follow up on his work. Instead, he would step back and admire the next nine were close and Hart hurt Johnson to the body which slowed him down. Then, just before the bell at the end of the 20th and final round, a flashbulb went off. Both men were actually momentarily blinded and walked for their corners thinking the fight was over. Now Hart was the quickest to realise the fight was still active so he launched himself at Johnson and hit him with a solid right hand that made Johnson stagger at the bell. Now Gregane's who would never have given Johnson to win if it went the distance, gave the fight to Hart. 
Of course, there was one individual who was sat at ringside, smiling like a Cheshire cat, and that man was Jim Jeffries. <laughs> that is just so not right. Johnson's won those first 10 rounds. I mean, by the sounds of it, it you know, looking at reports on the fight, many uh, were split with the decision. But those first 10 rounds were all Jack Johnson. And for the light bulb to go, it just rings alarm bells. And you've got Griggins, you know, saying you've got a fight. I was going to call it a no contest. This fight was always going to be benchmarked to be a heart win, no matter what Johnson did. So, I mean, it would seem that Johnson did miss his chance, though, because he did have him, in, have him in a situation where he had him in, in a bit of trouble and he wouldn't follow it up. So referee Greggins told the Washington Post that he gave the decision to Hart because all through the fight, Hart did all the forcing and leading. Johnson, of course, felt robbed. He said, after fighting until I reached the top, I've been thrown down by an unfair ruling. He demanded a second shot at him, promising to beat him in every round this time. But Hart just laughed. Johnson has enough yellow in him to paint City Hall. Johnson is a fancy boxer. And when he gets stung, he is strictly a tin canner and staller. I'll never fight another black man. To rub salt in the wounds, Jim Jeffries retired at the age of 29 years old on May 2nd, 1905. He said that since there were no, in his own words, logical challenges for him to fight, he was retiring from the ring. A shrewd promoter announced that Marvin Hart and the former light heavyweight champion Jack Root would meet on July 3rd at Reno, Nevada for the vacant World of Weight title. 4,000 fans and of course Jack Johnson are in attendance as Jim Jeffries actually agreed to referee the contest. The much bigger man, Marvin Hart, won by knockout and declared to face any man in the world in a fair fight that this challenge does not apply to black people. Oh, again, it's so bad, isn't it? What an absolute racist piece of Dreadful. shit to, to be able to continue to <laughs> say that sort of shit. Uh, now Johnson himself, he he you know he decided then at this point I need to move again. So he moved east, convinced after the heart decision that he couldn't get a fair shake on the west coast. He would face nine opponents over the next three months and beat them all. One opponent in particular we know only too well in Joe Jeanette, who was knocked down three times in the first of a scheduled three round bout in Philadelphia. Johnson and Kerr returned to Los Angeles during this three month period. And he bumped into an old-time friend, William Bryant. He invited him to stay for a while, but Bryant and Clara Kerr were soon drawn together. And in Jack Johnson's words, he said, Unknown to me, an attachment had developed between the two. Then late one October evening, Johnson returned home to find Bryant and Kerr gone. All the jewellery and fine clothes he didn't happen to be wearing were also gone. And he said, I was dumbfounded. Johnson recalled in his 1927 autobiography. On October the 16th, Johnson then located the couple and he called the police. And the story appeared in newspapers all over the country and it read, A coloured beauty, Miss Clara Kerr, had been arrested in Tuscon, Arizona, charged with stealing big Jack Johnson's bankroll, diamond rings and a diamond locket. The robbery was committed at Los Angeles, where she will have to answer the charges. In an unexpected turn of events, the couple actually got back together and relocated to Chicago, where Johnson had actually hoped they could start over. Well, to me, that sounds more like she knew she was fucked and she's thinking, shit, I better go back to Jack Johnson before I end up in jail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, left no money in my pocket. Uh, oh, dear. Why did he get out of her? Well, it doesn't last long. So 
Johnson continued to chase white fighters, uh, but they all ignored his calls. Instead, he fought the same black fighters as he, as he did before. He fought Joe Jeanette six times between May 1905 and September 1906, winning five and losing only once, which was only by disqualification. Now, the crowds were small, and so was the money. Johnson now was getting desperate for a big money fight. With money evaporating quickly, he was not able to live the luxurious life he was famed for. If it wasn't bad enough, Clara Kerr decided to leave him. Pot out of money. Tell her I love. She, she disappeared. <laughs> but with only the money in her purse this time, she didn't nick anything from him because he basically didn't have anything. So out of luck, in LA and Chicago, he decided to try New York. And as he was about to board the train, as he says in his own words, he was penniless. He actually recalls a hotel keeper and one-time sparring partner who would remain an important friend of uh, Jack Johnson's throughout his career, and that's Frank Sutton. He asked to borrow at least a dollar. Johnson recalled, of that dollar, I gave the train porter 50 cents. I bought two cigars with the other quarter, and the remaining quarter I tossed to the newsboy when I arrived in New York City. Johnson managed to find a fight to gather some necessary funds and stayed at a cheap boarding house. While he remained in the shadows, the world title he so desperately wanted changed hands on February 23rd, 1906, when Tommy Burns defeated Hart on points. The great thing about Burns was that he wasn't interested in drawing the colour line. After his victory, he said in his own words, I will defend my title as heavyweight champion of the world against all comers, none barred. By this, I mean black, Mexican, Indian, or any other nationality without regard to colour, size, or nativity. I propose to be the champion of the world, not the white, or the Canadian, or the American, or any other limited degree of champion. This, of course, was music to Jack Johnson's ears, but there was a condition, and that was that Burns give the white boys a chance first, like they haven't had enough chances. Johnson made a, legit, a legitimate defence against another up-and-coming heavyweight from Canada on April 26 in Chelsea, Massachusetts. That, of course, was the great and legendary Sam Langford. We have gone into great detail about this fight, so please check out Sam Langford's career profile. Johnson did knock Langford down in the sixth round en route to a 15-round decision. Now, Johnson acquired a new manager at this point, Sam Fitzpatrick, an ex-fighter from Australia who had come to California in the 1880s and quickly moved to the business side of boxing, training Peter Jackson, Kid McCoy and George Kid Levine to the middleweight championship. One of the first things Fitzpatrick did was announce that Johnson would gladly meet any or all the leading white heavyweights. Burns, Philadelphia Jack O'Brien, Sam Berger or... A1 Kaufman on a winner-takes-all basis, provided that Jeffries would agree to fight him. This is obviously Jim Jeffries wanted knocked him all out of contention. Of course, none of the contenders were interested in losing their high ranking to fight Johnson, and neither has Burns yet. Kaufman's manager turned Johnson down, and while the other white heavyweights fled so fast from the fire, Fitzpatrick said that, there isn't even wind resistance. <laughs> now, many representatives didn't even bother to respond. One sports writer printed his thoughts, calling them the yellowest pack of pigeon-livered mutts that ever disgraced the pages of the pugilistic history. With nothing Wicked. less... Love it, really. 
<laughs> it's a great it's a great quote isn't it brilliant now with nothing left in the u.s johnson's manager fitzpatrick consulted with one of his associates alec mclean a one-time bicycle racer who had been sandy ferguson's manager and had managed johnson in his battle with sam langford they decided to take johnson to australia to fight bill quinn the australian heavyweight champion and hoped to use that title as leverage to force burns into fighting their man Jack Johnson's arrival in Sydney on January the 24th, 1907, was huge news. The harbour was packed to the rafters, all wanting to catch a glimpse of the new heavyweight sensation that had been bogged up massively in the newspapers before his arrival. Johnson was told that the colour line would not be drawn in Australia, and he was told it wasn't an Australian's or a Brit's game to run away from a rival. And Johnson responded with a toast of his own. He said he liked the trip, he liked the city better, but he liked the people who had welcomed him so enthusiastically best. Cheers. First up was Australia's coloured champion, Peter Felix, for the coloured heavyweight championship of the world. This fight lasted only a round, and it was a devastating uppercut on the chin that ended the fight conclusively. Now, while enjoying his time in between his first and second fights in Australia, Johnson actually met a young lady called Lola Toy. Uh, it didn't go down well with her family. She got kicked out and then she managed to convince her dad to let her back in. Otherwise, she's going to send Jack Johnson around to beat him up. <laughs> but they uh, continued to see each other nonetheless. His next opponent in Melbourne on March 4th was a guy called Bill Lang. On a rain-soaked evening in front of a crowd of more than 15,000, the sloppy canvas made attack difficult, but Johnson found the fight too easy and carried Lang up to the ninth. By then, Johnson had had enough, so knocked his opponent out in nine rounds. It all seemed to be going rosy for Johnson, but with Bill Squires, who was a guy that he was supposed to fight, another decent fighter, and Bill Quinn, who was the Australian heavyweight champion, Neither of those fights had happened. It just never materialised. And Johnson decided he's going to return back to America. Now, Alec McLean initially agreed to Johnson leaving. I, said, I believe it was like he asked for $500 or something like that. But on the day he was due to sit sail, McLean had him arrested for a breach of contract and he was refused entry onto the boat. Johnson was pissed at McLean. And he punched him in the face, broke his nose. <laughs> Johnson had to spend some time in Australia pending a court case. Nor that it bothered him. He actually enjoyed the country very much. He loved the people, as he said before. And he, but he was eager to go home. He was homesick. Eventually, the case was heard in court. Johnson was actually fined five quid for the assault and then an undisclosed fee for breaching his contract. I'm not surprised he punched him in the face, to be honest with you, because he got a bit kicked <laughs> over there, didn't he? Like, you know, the, at the end of the day, like, he's just trying to... These fights weren't materialising that he was promised, so he's going to fuck off home, and I don't, I don't blame him for doing that, but I also don't blame him for punching McLean in the face as well. Now, while all the court shenanigans were being processed, Johnson's financial fortunes had changed significantly. On March the 30th, a month before he left for the US, Johnson said he bet his last $5 on a horse owned by the promoter Jim Brennan. He reckons that he thought nothing of it and spent the day greeting fans. The next day was his 29th birthday and when he went to collect his winnings, he was shocked to find that his $5 wager had actually earned him $15,000. 
in profit. Now, this great story has been sourced by the biographer of his autobiographer, Finis Farr, who offered a more realistic explanation for Johnson's windfall, and he had actually bet $700 after only learning from racetrack insiders that the race was fixed for Brennan's horse to win. Either way, what a great story. Johnson, of course, was delighted, and he said in his autobiography, Jack Johnson, in the ring and out, nothing could have been more opportune, for I had been in a predicament wondering how I was to finance my trip back to the United States. If the long shot had not won, well, it still makes me sweat to think about it. I would probably have been in Australia yet wondering what had happened to me and making futile explanation to prison keepers. Wow, uh, what a story. I th- I'll, I'll, I'm definitely leaning to uh, him knowing that Brennan's also a sure, yep. sure goer. Yeah, five, it sounds better though, than $5. We're going to move back to Johnson and McLean here. Uh, so Johnson and McLean, you know, now Johnson's got the money, he can now go back to America. Well, McLean, he boarded the same boat as uh, Jack Johnson <laughs> on his way home to America. And they stopped off at Honolulu and there was press there. They gave versions, different versions of accounts that had happened in Australia to the press. Now, once back on the boat, Johnson went looking for McLean as soon as they had set sail for San Francisco, which was going to be their last stop. Now, McLean, he had picked up a gun. Someone told him to take, to take a gun with him, um, so he did. And it's, this is his side of the story. This is McLean's side of the story. This is what he said. He said, when he got within 10 feet of me, he asked me what I had said in the press about him. I had my hand on my gun in my coat pocket. I told him to stop where he was, and he told me he was going to break my back. Did you say that I was not game? He asked. Yes, I answered. And I'm going to make you quit right here to prove it. Then he asked me if I had a gun. And I said, yes. Yes, I do. And it's loaded too. And if he moved, I would shoot. I have my gun too, he said. Well, go ahead and get it. And I'll show you. You are not game for this is the one place where I have an even chance with you. You're not going to shoot me while I'm going after it. No, go ahead and get it. And somebody tried to stop him and said, don't go, Jack. You don't want to kill anybody. But Johnson went downstairs to get his gun. He went downstairs all right, but he never came back up. In fact, he never appeared on deck again until he reached Frisco. And he didn't threaten me or offer me any injury, anything either. And that was my last fight with Jack Johnson. Now, Jack Johnson arrived in San Francisco on May the 18th and began his mission to get a world title shot. Now, Burns had agreed to fight Bill Squires at Colmer on July the 4th, 1907. And Johnson confronted the champion at his hotel and he remembered, I had $700 in my pocket and offered to box him for it right there. Then I offered to go and get $9,300 more and make him a side bet. But this he declined. To Burns talked of going into a room with me to have it out i said come on but he did not get any further now johnson he planted himself right there at ringside for the fight between burns and squires with the australian going in as the surprising favorite burns knocked him out on july the 17th johnson then fought ex-champion bob fitzsimmons at the national athletic club in philadelphia Fitzsimmons was by no means the same fighter. He was 45 years old and out of shape, and he had tore a ligament in his left bicep just before the bout. 
Bob did well in the first three minutes, showing the crowd what they had once saw in his heyday. But in the second, it was a sad state of affairs. And Johnson explains it best in his own words when he said, In the second round, I walked over to Bob and fainted him into knots. I pulled him into a duck, then swiftly planted my right on his jaw, and Bob went over on his back. Fitz rolled over onto his face, and at about the count of six, was on his hands and knees, with his head stuck to the floor. He tried to pull it up, but no, he couldn't budge it. He was like a hypnotised man, who couldn't take his finger from his nose. He knew what he wanted to do, started right, but the head seemed to weigh a ton. There wasn't a chance in the world of him lifting it. Billy McCartney, the referee, lifted him to his feet and Bob reeled after me, thinking the goal was still on. Tim O'Rourke led him to his corner and washed his face with ice water, bringing him to. It's sad state of affairs for Bob Fitzsimmons, but like I've just said, 45 years of age, way past his prime, past his best, with a torn bicep, yet he still manages to give Jack Johnson a little bit of a showing before Johnson absolutely sparks him. <laughs> yeah, he did, didn't he? He did give it a go by all counts. He seemed to just weave in and out. Johnson said he just couldn't quite catch it for them three minutes. Just shows you, Bob, when he was at his peak, I mean, we had him in our top 10 of uh, British fighters of all time. Uh, we still feel he should be in there. But yeah, this was not... It's a bit like Joe Lewis and Rocky Marciano, isn't it? You know, they, sh- they shouldn't be fighting. They should be, they should be there just watching the crowd. Unfortunate. A month later, Johnson knocked out uh, Charles Cutler. He had actually been trained by John L. Sullivan, who was beginning to get a bit pissed off with Jack Johnson. And he really thought, yeah, I'm going to get cut. I'm going to train him up and he's going to knock Johnson out. Well, Johnson got rid of him in a round. Johnson, by this point, was held in great regard by the black community by this point. He was mobbed everywhere he went. Uh, many baseball games he went to, there was like fans everywhere, wanted a piece of him. And it was after that cut the fight in Manhattan on August 8th that he met the next woman of his life. Her real name was Anna Patterson, but she called herself Hattie McClay. And when he met her, she later remembered she was living at what they called a call house, uh, you know, a, a whorehouse, if you like, going out on calls and sporting. Johnson claimed in his 1927 autobiography that the, the what the attraction was, and he said, the heartaches which Mary Austin and Clara Kerr caused me led me to forswear coloured women and to determine that my henceforth would be cast only with white women. Bit untrue for there, however, because Johnson chased every woman. It didn't matter what colour or creed they were. If you had a skirt, Johnson was interested. And in, in September, Johnson defeated Sailor Burt by decision by knocking down six times. Two months later, he knocked out fireman Jim Flynn, uh, knocked him unconscious for four minutes. And back in the dressing room, he was gracious, a gracious loser. He said, the best man won. And all I can say is to warn the next man that is matched with Johnson. He is a great man, and I was entirely outclassed. And Johnson obviously was in full agreement. Johnson said, I knew I had him after I closed his eye. He is a game little boy, but too small for this class. I think that I have demonstrated to the world that I am not afraid, and I challenge anyone to find the yellow in me. Tommy Burns is my next man, and I stand ready to fight him at any time. The St. Louis Dispatch agreed that Johnson deserved a world title shot and they wrote, Jack Johnson is a coloured man, but we cannot get away from the fact that he is the greatest living exponent of the art of hit and get away. And as such, 
is the outstanding challenger for the title which Tommy Burns claims, but to which he is not entitled until he puts Johnson out of the way. It is up to Tommy Burns to heed the call of the fight fans. While all talk is about Johnson fighting Tommy Burns, Burns travelled to England to fight the Indian Army veteran and British heavyweight champion who was James Gunner Moore. And uh, when he got back after knocking him out in the 10th, his promise, this is Tommy Burns' promise, it's Johnston next. And when I do meet him, there will be no love lost. I haven't the slightest doubt that I will trim him and trim him good. Well, that's been a brilliant lead up to the eventual world heavyweight title fight, which we will cover in the second part of the Jack Johnson career profile. It's been a great story so far, but there's so much more to tell. And as we said at the start of the show, we don't want to try and put it into one episode because we think it'll be easier for you, for you to listen to if you do it in sort of an hour and 40 minutes spurts as opposed to trying to do it in one single listen. As listeners ourselves, we know how hard it is to listen to one episode at one time in one go, especially something that's yep. three hours long. So for us to have done this in, what, an hour and 45 minutes, part one, and then obviously part two, around about a similar amount and we're able to also then get as many stories into the episode as possible so we do hope that you appreciate us doing it in that way the same way we did for the darker side of boxing with the story of don king and the story of reuben carter we did them stories in two parts because we felt it was very justified to put so much into them so we hope that you have enjoyed this first part of the career profile of jack johnson and it has been an absolute pleasure to sit down and record this but we're really excited even more so for part two because part two is obviously going to be talking about Jack Johnson becoming world heavyweight champion and crossing that colour line and moving on in his life outside of the ring with some of the stories that are so well known that you know they get made into memes even in today's world and I can't wait to, to really go down and, and talk through all them and, and go through that story again, Johnston. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, there's so many. I mean, the, the Jeffries fights, the fight of the century, that comes up. Obviously, when, when he's held the title for a while. But him just finally beating Tommy Burns. What a terrific moment. Him chasing him down. We'll get into a little bit of that as well. And how he eventually got that fight. I think it's a perfect time for us to to call a halt to this first part. And um, and we'll try not to give you the the most uh, notable stories. Obviously, you can't not. You know, they're all fantastic stories. But we try and pull out some gems if we can, like we have in this in this episode. So as always then, Fire fans, please, if you've enjoyed this first part of the Jack Johnson career profile, let us know on social media at career underscore profiles on Twitter. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at BTR Boxing Pod. And you can also find us on YouTube. Please go and subscribe to the YouTube channel, BTR Boxing Podcast. Go and check out some of the video podcasts that we've been doing recently as well. And a final shout out to the patrons of the podcast. Thank you as always so much for supporting us in our journey to create some of the yeah, greatest some of the greatest boxing podcasts out there when we thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy doing them for you and we appreciate the support as always and we hope you've enjoyed part one of the Jack Johnson career profile
Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.